Hey folks, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of the Writers Panel. Um, this is a terrific episode today. It is really technical. Um, it really, we really get into how to write a movie um, in a way that I absolutely needed right now. Um, it's it's a great conversation with Tom Vaughn. Um, so I won't waste too much time up top giving you an update. A couple of things that I want to make you aware of. Um, first of all, please go over and subscribe to the Substack, um, benblacker.substack.com. Uh, I recently wrote about the Barbie movie, which I absolutely loved, and people seem to really like what I had to say about it. Um, I find the movie inspiring, and, and I tell you uh, in that article why you should too. That's over at benblacker.substack.com. If you enjoy that newsletter or if you enjoy the Writers Panel podcast, and if you are listening, then hopefully you are enjoying it, um, please become a paid subscriber. I, I, I'm doing this all on my own these days. Um, we are an independent production, and so any support really helps make this thing. I'm also teaching, as I mentioned previously, I'm teaching uh, a new introductory class with Script Anatomy. This is a great class. Uh, it starts September 10th. Um, we kind of go over the basics of pilot writing. You know, you would take your idea and by the end of class, you have a full outline for that pilot. It is important to me that everyone gets a really solid outline out of this thing so that the actual writing of the pilot is super easy. Um, that foundation, that structural stuff, much of which we talk about in today's episode, is taught in this televisionary class at Script Anatomy. Go over to scriptanatomy.com and hit the class calendar um, button and you will see my class, which starts on September 10th and runs for, I want to say, six, eight classes, something like that. Anyway, it's great. I really enjoy teaching this class and I would enjoy having some good folks like you in it. Between us, I'm also teaching a class that does not appear on the Script Anatomy um, calendar because it is invite only. And I have a couple of spots left to fill. So if this is something you're interested in, I would love to have you in the class. This is a uh, advanced class that is a rewrite class and I believe it's eight classes and we spend five weeks uh, rewriting an existing script that you have um, pilots only I'm not doing features in this one rewriting an existing script that you have um, per the weekly lecture so I'll do a lecture we'll concentrate on one you know super specific thing like amping the emotion in your scenes and then you will go back and you will rewrite the first act of your script again and again and again until the fifth week of class when you'll have a couple weeks off and you'll rewrite the entire script. And then we spend the last three classes doing table reads of your scripts, which by this point you have gone through several, you know, five rewrites of. And so they're going to be in great shape and they're not going to be embarrassing for actors to read. Uh, I'll get some of my actor pals to do this. We'll do it over Zoom. Um, so I literally have like a couple of slots left in this class. Um, if you are interested in taking this class, email me at nerdistwriters at gmail.com um, and send your script along with it. And I'll take a look and, and 
if there's still room in the class, um, absolutely, I would love to have you. I, I feel like folks who listen to this podcast uh, are, are the kind of people I want to have in my class. Um, comedy, drama, hour-long, 30-minute, whatever kind of pilot you're writing, you can do it in this rewrite class um, that, again, is, is a secret class that is not offered on the Script Anatomy calendar. So there's this advanced class, which I've got a couple slots for. There's the introductory class, which if you are new to screenwriting or if you are, an, you know, an established writer and you want to just, you know, work on something new and go through these paces of developing your pilot idea, it's a great place to do it. I've, I've had working writers in this class and I've had brand new writers in this class and both are great. Um, the, the intro class, as I said, you can find over on scriptanatomy.com. The advanced class, go to, um, shoot me an email at nerdistwriters at gmail.com. And all of this information, and probably the best way to contact me, is over on the substack, benblacker.substack.com. Now, today's conversation, as I said, is with Tom Vaughn, uh, who is a screenwriter, a feature writer with um, almost 30 years of experience. He's had produced about nine or 10 screenplays that he's written either. And he you'll hear him talk about this as the first writer or the last writer on it. Um, most recently was Winchester, uh, from a couple of years ago, starring Helen Mirren. And Tom is also a teacher. Uh, and he is, if this conversation is anything to base it on a very good teacher, it got me excited and I want to take his class. Um, because he makes these sort of kind of heady and technical aspects of screenwriting, the, the you know, the hard structural stuff that, that there's a learning curve to, he makes it very accessible. So uh, this is the kind of episode that I think you need to pay attention to and you might want to take notes on. <laughs> um, it's, it's not the kind of thing that you can sort of half listen to, at least if you want to learn anything. And, and at least it wasn't for me. Uh, this is one I'm going to go back to again and again. Thanks so much to Tom for coming on and um, be sure to check out his website, which you'll hear him talk about right at the beginning of the episode. Um, thanks again for listening. I appreciate it. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! All right, let's get into it. Tom Vaughn is here. Tom, um, before we get into uh, this conversation, which I think is a really fascinating, and I love the specificity of what you wanted to talk about, which is second acts in feature films, um, let's let's get your credentials. You know, where, how, how do you come to be an expert on this? Well, I've been I've been writing screenplays professionally about twenty seven years now. I joined the guild in ninety six, and. It's, you know, it's been a long career. So there's a lot of ups and downs through that, you know, almost three decades. And uh, I've had eight films made at this point. Seven, I was the first or last. I've got a film coming out in a few days called The Haunting of Queen Mary, where I was the middle writer. That was the, this is my first produced movie where I was the middle writer, where I only got story credit. So that was an interesting uh, experience going through that. And, you know, it had changed, it has changed so much. It's not, you know, it doesn't resemble much my script. So story credit is pretty appropriate for, for what I got. 
Um, and I've been uh, teaching for about 20 years uh, as well. And right now I teach at storyandplot.com, which is my website, and at the University of Houston, which is my my alma mater. So uh, hopefully when the strike ends, I, uh, I've got two more productions that are kind of waiting for the strike to end. So I've been I've been doing this a long time and I've been talking about it for a long time. So uh, I hopefully I can add some value to the conversation. Absolutely. You are you are the right person for the right topic. Um, I'm curious to hear, like when you started out as a writer, um, was structure something that came easily to you? What was the learning curve for you on it? It, it was not. I started out as a playwright. So my my interest was mostly characters and dialogue. And I really liked genre. So I was very fortunate that way that I, I liked commercial pieces. So when I switched over from playwriting, um, apparently it's difficult to, to get rich as a playwright, apparently. Um, and uh, found out it's difficult to get rich as a screenwriter, too. But at the time, I had big dreams. So I switched over to screenwriting and for whatever reason, my, my little mathematical mind really invested in structure. Like that was the thing that interested me. That was the thing that I, I tackled. So in between my playwriting and my professional career, I just spent, you know, just night after night breaking down the movies that I loved and trying to figure out what the similarities were, trying to figure out what it looked like. Um, and it was a slow process. I, I don't think I really, really started to understand structure in a consistent way where I could apply it to my writing until I was about six or seven years as a professional. And I, I looked back on it when I started writing professionally. I thought, well, I must be good at it. I'm making a living at it as if that was proof that I was good <laughs> and that and six, seven years later, looking back on it, going, man, I had no idea what I was doing. And no no wonder I was so inconsistent where one script would be really good and one script would kind of you know, fall flat on its face. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I have always kind of approached it from a structural standpoint. And the big shift in me over the years has been seeing structure as something to adhere to, whereas now is structure is a thing that liberates me. Structure is a thing that sets me free to, to be more creative, to write more great scenes, to, to, to write more great sequences and, and have more fun with it. So it's been a really nice evolution for me in that, in that regard. I think that's really interesting. And, and I want to pick up on that in a little bit, but, but let's go back to this, the early uh, learning about structure and, and what kind of stuff did you watch and what were those similarities that you found? Uh, well, back then, and this is this is ninety three, ninety four, and back back then, there like there's no internet the way we know it now. So like there wasn't all this education out there. Back then, you had pretty much you had two books. You had writing screenplays that sell by Michael Hodge, and of course, screenplay by Sid Field. So that's that's all you had. And if it wasn't in those books, it was you know it was the Wild West. So you would have to to even read a script. You'd have to send a check to some place on Hollywood Boulevard, and then they would photocopy you, photocopy you know, and then send it back. And like six weeks later, you'd get a script. You could read it, try to figure out this is what a script looks like. This is what a screenplay looks like. So what I ended up doing is I had a friend who owned a video store, and so I get to go there 
uh, at like 15 minutes before it closed and rent any movies that I wanted. So it was free and I was broke. I had this small little like 12 by 12 room in a house and I was a chain smoker with no open windows. It was just awful. Uh, but all I wanted to do then was figure this out, figure out what these things are. And so what I would do, and to this day, I still do it where I have the timeline on the left and then I would write the scene on the right and then figure out, is this an important scene? What changes to the story in this scene? And uh, back then you had plot point one and plot point two, and that was the division between act one and act three. But like that was so open-ended. It was something changes in plot, plot point one, and like, you had no idea what to do with it. So you're just looking at these similarities, looking at, and then I discovered the importance of the midpoint. And then that was a huge leap for me because screenplay doesn't mention the midpoint hardly at all. So when I figured out going, oh my gosh, in, in The Fugitive, the midpoint's this huge shift in the movie. Oh my God, in Groundhog Day, the midpoint, there's this huge shift in the movie. And so you identify that this, this midpoint is there and then what changes. And so I ended up having this long 60 page act two where scripts tended to die. Suddenly now it was, oh, it's 25 pages plus 25 pages. And then starting to break down what happens within those 25 pages. Oh, there's actually two sequences in those 25 pages. And then eventually ended up being eight sequences, which I then found out later on was what USC was doing. And, and they were teaching the eight sequence approach a lot in uh, at USC. And so it was just a lot of people trying to problem solve, trying to figure out how to make this easier. And, and for me, a big part of it is how do you make decisions up front that make your job easier? It is already so difficult as it is. And you can, like my, my playwriting teacher was Edward Albee. And uh, Edward was a genius, just a pure, simple Jesus uh, genius, like three Pulitzer Prizes and uh, and and but he wasn't a great teacher because he was so talented he could rely on his talent on a consistent basis and so he had his taste and he had his notes and he had his thoughts and they were usually smarter than yours and you have you know but he had a hard time relaying why he did what he did because he was so talented whereas i i am not as talented as edward nor hardly any of us are and uh, I had to learn the craft and sometimes talent would show up. You know, I'm not untalented. So sometimes days I would just nail it. I would just like, this is a great scene. This is a fun scene. The brainstorming worked, working with a partner and you guys are making each other better. But then other days, talent wouldn't show up. And then you're just kind of stuck and you're not as good as you were the day before. And, and so what started to interest me is, well, what processes can we find that can help me for those days that talent does not show up? How can I get my work to be more consistent? Because if you can get a project and talent shows up the entire time, you don't really need so much craft. You know, like you're just going to nail it. But most of the time, talent takes some days off. And so you, you have to have a process to rely on and have fundamentals to rely on. And then that process and, and those fundamentals are really good for rewriting as well, because sometimes you think you nailed it the day you wrote it. And then a week later, you're like, this doesn't work. 
But if you don't have those processes and those value systems, you know, to rely on, you're you're trying to fix it with the same thing that broke it, which is relying on talent. Let's drill down on um, some of the stuff that you've mentioned already, because I'm I'm not familiar with some of it. Um, and I think the place to start, especially for our listeners who you know want want to do what you do, is to talk about that midpoint. What does that mean? Well, it's hard to talk about the midpoint without talking about the story and the dramatic question. So for me, I mean, everyone talks about story. It's like, what? Well, what is the story? Tell your story, and that always bugged me because everyone seemed to have a very different definition of story, and and there's no way to communicate it. And I I wanted that definition to help me on a consistent basis. So after you know spending some time doing this for a living, there was a huge quote from. Um, Sidney Pollack that meant a lot to me. And Sidney Pollack was just talking about Tootsie and saying, well, Tootsie is a story about a man who dresses up as a woman and who becomes a better man. And and he said it off somewhat off the cuff because he he's from the, um, uh, the Sanford Meisner School, which is for the group theater school, which is a whole other conversation. <laughs> but all these people that really had a big influence on me all tended to come from the same place. So for him, that definition was every scene was going to help that story. And that light bulb went off with me of, oh, well, this tends to be what story is. And how I was taught was it's a character arc. You got to put on a character arc. But what I realized is that treating it as a character arc, treating it as something that you just kind of attach to at the end or kind of put on top of a plot tends to fall flat and have no emotional resonance with the audience. You can't just as an afterthought add a character arc or have something that doesn't move you, something that's not emotional and just go, oh, well, this is how the character grows. Instead, what you need is to build that growth and build that transformation from the start because that is your story. And how I how I define story is the transformational journey of a human being. That in some way, shape, or form, someone or something is transforming in this story. And that's what you focus on and you build that into your structure. Now, most stories are a character changes for the better. Uh, there's a lot of stories where the character remains steadfast in their beliefs and changes everyone around them because of it. And that transformation is how they change others. And then, of course, there's tragedies where someone fails to change or changes too late. But in all three instances, it is transformation. Like that is the focus. Story is growth. So if you can define that story, that this is a story about this person who is this way, who goes through this journey and becomes this way, then you can start building your structure around that. You know where you're starting and you know where you're ending. And then from a structure standpoint, the midpoint is mostly going to be affected by the dramatic question. So the dramatic question is just something we lean on, which is just a um, uh, you know a question asked in the form of, of a dramatic conflict that the audience anticipates an answer to. Will the bad guys win? Will they get their goal? Will Indy get the arc? That sort of thing. So when we look at the midpoint, what we want out of that midpoint is some change in the form of the story through a victory, through a defeat. And we want the midpoint, the best midpoint is going to be directly related to the dramatic question. 
And that victory or a defeat, and they're both going to be fake. They're both going to be you know, false because the story's not over yet. But it is the first legitimate attempt that the hero has to solve their problem. That's going to bring us through the, the fourth sequence. And they are going to think they succeed or they think they have failed. And that has to affect them emotionally in a way that affects their behavior through the next sequence. That's what we want. And the the overall effect of it is basically a trampoline bounce of narrative momentum. Is we you want that narrative momentum to come off of that midpoint that's going to push the second half of the movie. And in and a lot of times it will feel like a different movie because of that big dramatic change. From a story standpoint, from the transformation of this character before, during, or after the midpoint, it's usually before, during, that character is going to get a taste of what it looks like to be this other person. This is why you'll see in romantic comedies, you'll see that little moment between the two romantic uh, partners where they go, oh, they would be a good couple. And they see, we would be a good couple. Same thing with buddy films where they go, oh, they would be great partners. But neither one is ready for that yet. But we get a taste, we get a glimpse of it. Uh, and then from a structure standpoint, what's really important about the midpoint is it's going to affect your sequence going into the third act. Because if the midpoint is a victory for the hero, the antagonist is going to be the one gaining speed, gaining strength, dusting themselves off and driving the narrative into the third act. And then if the uh, victory or the midpoint is a defeat, then it's going to be the hero who is dusting themselves off and kind of gaining strength um, and driving the narrative into the third act. And so if you can make that decision about what your midpoint is, not only are you giving your a plate, giving yourself a spot of this is where the entire 2A is leading to. So now you know where you're going through that whole section as you outline it. But you also are dictating that sequence before the third act as well. And so just making that one decision, you're already starting to fill in those spots for your story. And this is one of the things that I love to do with structure is if we can link all these definitions, what ends up happening is you end up making big decisions up front that make every single subsequent decision easier and easier and easier, which is what we want. This is a hard job. So let's make decisions that make it a little bit easier. I'm I'm not familiar with this eight point um you know st structure idea. Um, but it 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 sounds like you're basically looking at a four quadrant sort of storytelling with two sequences in each quadrant. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting to hear, like, as you were talking, I'm realizing that, like, when you land on that midpoint, it's it does dictate those two sequences that come before it and the two sequences that come after it. Um, I wonder if we can talk about this in, in like, find an, um, an example of a movie so that folks can follow this, because it is a, a little uh, heady right now. It's all very technical right now. Is there a movie that you you... Is there a movie that you go to that illustrates this really well? Yeah. Yeah. I'll try to. There's uh, Groundhog Day is amazing in its eight sequences and how the character character changes every sequence. Like he's a different character every sequence. And then uh, most recently, the Avengers did eight sequences really well. The, the original Avengers. 
that did it really well. Uh, and Ratatouille is a great example of a good sequence approach. Once you've got that sort of midpoint turn, that midpoint escalation, I, my concern as a writer is making those sequences, those two sequences that precede it, not feel like treading water. Right. And I, I like this idea that you mentioned that is like the midpoint is where the protagonist gets an opportunity to achieve the goal. I think that's really interesting. So what's happening in those sequences that precede it, that they are not getting that opportunity? Well, it and everyone teaches it differently um, and everyone has their own approach. You know, this is how I teach it. And and again, just going back to this is really about problem solving when things aren't working on their own. Yeah, like if you can figure out how to like if if everything is smooth sailing and it's working for you and you have dramatic and that's all structure is, is, you know, like what the audience knows and when they know it in order to achieve dramatic momentum and emotional resonance. But I know if I am struggling. What I fall back on is in that sec first part of of the second act, which is you know I, I refer to it as two A, and I think that's kind of gained a lot of traction. Is Act Two A is this is why we define the dramatic question because if you can define the dramatic question of say um, Indiana Jones wants to get the Ark before before the Nazis or they want to stop Loki from destroying the world. Uh, then what you want out of the eight sequences is the first two sequences is act one going into act two sequence three. And I called that first steps. And that's just simply you like a fairly traditional structure idea of leaving the ordinary world and going into the special world. And so it's exploring that new world, exploring that territory, mapping out the dangers, learning the rules to it. It's the first step into the forest. And we get to create what that is as storytellers. Like we get to define what that is. And it doesn't have to be the special world in a way like Star Wars, where they go to Moss Eisley. Like that's their first steps is we've got to get a ship. We've got to leave this planet. And so the entire third sequence is them trying to get this ship to leave the planet. In Die Hard, that whole sequence is him trying to call the cops. In Skyfall, which is probably my favorite Bond movie, all he's doing in that sequence is, uh, you know, testing out his 007 again. To like, to like, that's all they do is like, oh well, we've got to test you and make sure you qualify as a 007, and that's their first steps. And and it seems like if I'm if I'm applying this correctly, it feels like in Groundhog Day it is where Phil is literally learning the rules. Yeah, in Groundhog Day he comes out. Obviously, the the incite against incident is he repeats the day, <clears throat> and then the second sequence is him trying to figure out is this real? What is going on? Am I crazy? And then when he accepts it that it is happening, when he accepts his mission, you know that this is going on. Then that goes in the first steps. And as soon as he accepts it, I am in a world that is repeating day after day after day. He is in first steps and now learning the rules to what is going on. He switches from that to first attempts when he dies and wakes up 
or he goes to jail and then wakes up free and clear. And now this is his first attempt to uh, achieve perfection where he's the old Phil. So he manipulates, he exploits it. He tries to get the old version of Phil is trying to solve his problem. And that's really what 2A and 2B is. It is the old version of this character from act one trying to solve their problem. And it will not work because they are their old version. And this is such a key thing about act two. The whole point of act two is to transform that character, to become the character they need to be in act three to solve their dramatic question to the audience's satisfaction. And so every decision you make, now obviously it's gonna be fun, it's, you know, different action scenes, horror scenes, whatever your whatever your fun is for this movie. But what you're actually doing is you are pushing this character, forcing them to transform, usually against their better judgment, into this other character. Because the character in Act One cannot answer their dramatic question to the audience's satisfaction. They might be able to answer the dramatic question in one way, shape, or form, but they can't do it to the audience's satisfaction yet. They have to become the character they are in act three to be able to do that. And that's what act two is all about. You give them the tools, whether they're physical tools, spiritual tools, or emotional tools, you are forcing them to transform. And, you know, we talk about a lot of, of you know, beat up your characters, screw with your characters, torture your characters, but we don't often talk about why we do that. We do that to break them. Because people don't change when they're happy. People change when they're broken. People give up their old ways when, when the old ways have failed. And so that's all what you're doing in act two is breaking that character and break, turning them into something new so they can answer the dramatic question to the audience's satisfaction. So does the embracing of the new person that they've become so that happens in 2B. Does it happen, you know, like what does 2B look like? Yeah. So <clears throat> you come out of the midpoint and I have, uh, you know, this, and I thought, I thought um, Blake Snyder described it really well when he called it bad guys close in. And I, and I think the only thing I don't love about that phrase is that the idea that it has to be bad guys. You know, it's metaphorical. And if you, if you treat it as a metaphorical description, you're absolutely fine because that's what it is. All you're doing there is you're turning up the notch for every tension you have in the movie. Every relationship is going to be turned up a notch. Every conflict is going to be turned up a notch. You are now just kind of turning up that slow boil to the hero. That's going to be the fifth sequence. And then the sixth sequence is going to lead to a low point where is often going to be kind of like the the death of the old version of themselves. Like they no longer can try to answer the dramatic question as their old selves. And that's usually when you have that low point and that character is broken. And then that turns into the sixth sequence, which is dictated by the midpoint of who has momentum there, who has um, you know, gaining strength that's going to go into the third, into the third act. Um, and what I think is necessary there and what I tend to write for is what I call the realization. And that's when the hero realizes who they want to be. It is 
It is John McClane on the sink with the bloody feet. It is that moment of the Hulk and the Avengers when he's talking to Harry Dean Stanton. And like, this is the realization where the character realizes intellectually, probably even says it, this is who I want to be. But they haven't paid for it at that point. It's still just an intent. It's still just a desire to be someone different. They don't actually pay for that transformation until later in the third act. But I I like that moment of realization that I want to be someone else. And now they start trying to solve the problem as that new person into the third act. And then the moment, what I call the crisis, and that's basically the, you know, the act three break, breaking into act three. And that's the end is in sight. You can kind of see it. They have a plan and it just looks very unlikely to be answered to our satisfaction at that point. And that will kind of take us into act three, which is a, a whole other conversation. <laughs> So I, I wanted to follow, this is absolutely fascinating to me because again, like I, I, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but like, I never took these classes. I never read these books. I, I was always a very instinctual writer. And I think like at a certain point in, in the way that you discovered in those first five, seven years of writing, like this stuff works, this stuff helps. It makes the job easier. Um, but I want to follow up on on something you mentioned earlier, which is internalizing these structures has freed you in many ways to become a more creative writer. Let's let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's everything for me is about intent. Like, what's the intention? What's the intention of the moment? What's the intention of the scene? What's the intention of the sequence? What's the intention of the screenplay? And so. What getting better at structure has done for me is it has given me the gift of clarity of what the intent is. I know what needs to happen in this scene. I'm not, I'm not locked into the interpretation of that intent. I'm not locked into how we're going to go about that intent. I have all the freedom in the world to figure out what is the best way to get the intent. Like just take, for example, a scene of, oh, well, here is a scene where I want the audience to see that these two people should be together. Great. That's the intent of the scene. And now you've got all this freedom of what is the most fun way, what is the most interesting, what is the most engaging, what is the most emotional way I can do that. And I can write the one scene this way and then, oh, this is good, but I can do it better. And then you've got the, because you know what the intent is and it's, it has a, a, a huge influence on the criterion by which you make decisions. I am telling this story. This is a story about this person who turns into this person. Every scene is going to support that story one way or in the other. I, I will have mental notes for myself. I will get notes from producers. I will get notes from the studio. Um, I'll have friends read it. And because I have this criterion of what is the intent, I can then say, I like that note that helps me, or I don't like that help, that note that doesn't help me. Or, you know, like, oh my God, that makes me look like a genius. I'm going to use that because it's a better way to express the intent. And so knowing structure, knowing what each of these things are for, what you're trying to do, 
Now, the key thing always is, can you do it in an emotionally engaging way? Can you make it in a way that surprises and delights the audience? You look at so many movies that have the exact same structure and you'd never know it because the movies do such a great job of surprising and delighting the audience within that scene. Like you don't see that, oh, it's the exact same structure. Uh, one of my favorite examples is Cars and Doc Hollywood. They have the exact same structure. I mean, Cars looks like a remake of Doc Hollywood and they're both great movies. They're both they're both wonderful. They're, they're both emotional. And so a lot of people, they, they come into structure and they see it as formula and they don't realize, no, no, this is, these are fundamentals of story. Like all structure is, is what you tell the audience and when you tell them, that's all structure is. And your goal with that choice is how do you maximize narrative momentum and emotional resonance? And so you've got all the freedom in the world to figure out the most exciting, clever, creative, emotionally engaging ways to tell this story because you know what story you're trying to tell. Yeah, it makes so much sense um, to hear you say it. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. I uh, Please come back and let's, let's talk about first acts and third acts sometime. I would love it. I would love it. Uh, we'll wrap up as we always do, though, by asking you, what are you watching these days? Uh, have you seen movies, television that have gotten you excited or inspired that you want to share with folks? My wife and I really enjoyed the series Platonic on Apple TV. We really we really enjoyed it. We watched as much as we can. And we've, we're very late to the party, but we're getting uh, to what we do in the shadows and really enjoying that. So recommend them both. Uh, Yes. Great, great recommendations. Uh, Tom, thank you so much. Uh, let's talk soon. Thanks for having me, Ben.